Good morning. Christ is risen. And the Spirit has fallen. You don't know what to say to that yet. It's Pentecost Sunday. And it's good to be here. I mean, you can tell it's Pentecost Sunday because of, I'm the one in the midst of the candlesticks this morning. That's a Revelation joke. Do you guys not read Revelation? I hope the fire marshal's not here. I'm not sure this is up to code, but it's, it's Pentecost Sunday. We're breaking codes left and right. That's what we do. Ah, it is, it's really good to be here. I'm, uh, it's, it's intimidating to speak in this service because my wife is here. That's always, that's always difficult. She's very supportive, very supportive. But, you know, it's like when you're, there's a little bit of intimidation in the fact. And then Bishop Ed is here, which I usually get to come to sanctuary with him far away, right? And, and now he's present, right? And then Jonathan's here. In fact, today's sermon is a follow-up, an attempt to kind of add an addendum to what Jonathan said last week. And as I said in the first service, I can't promise you. How many of you were here for the 10 o'clock service last week? Anybody? So, or heard the sermon online. So in the 10 o'clock service last week, he says, boom shakalaka at one point. Right? So I, I'm going to try to work that in today. So listen for it. It's Pentecost Sunday. That's almost speaking in tongues. So we're going we're gonna to try to... We don't, want to get, we don't want to break too many codes, but maybe we'll do some of that. So, Pentecost Sunday, I want to look at texts we've already read together quickly. Romans 8 and the gospel reading from, from John 14, and we'll jump right in. It's good to be with you. Glad, glad to be here today. Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. I love that. Paul characterizes life outside of Christ as a life of fear. If you're going to encapsulate what it means to live apart from Christ, it's to live in fear. But to live in Christ is to live in the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. Everything God the Father means for the Son, He means for me and He means for you. Everything. Join heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The if here is not a a condition. It's not suffer and then you will be glorified. It is since you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. Everything that you share with him now, you share with him in his sufferings. Everything you share with him in the end, you will share with him in his glories. And then John 14 The beginning of the chapter, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways that you speak to us and that you hear us, the ways in which you touch us and allow us to touch you. Open our hearts, our ears, our eyes. Help us to respond to you today, to the word that you open up for us. Help us to embody it, to take it in and let it take us as we move out into the world. We pray this with Christ and by the Spirit, and everyone said, Amen. So I want to talk first a bit about what Pentecost is, and then say a few words about how we are to live it. What we're celebrating today is not an event that has happened in the past. This is not Pentecost Sunday, is not the anniversary of Pentecost. We don't remember something that happened once. Pentecost is an ongoing event. We remember its beginning, but we don't remember that it has happened because it is happening. Pentecost is continuing, and we're being caught up into it to participate in it. In John 14, we just read Jesus saying to the disciples that he's going to go away and prepare a place for him, that where he is, they can be, and if he goes there, he will come to them and will not leave them orphaned. Now, what's startling in the gospel is that over and over again in the gospel, Jesus has said to every audience he has, I'm going where you cannot go. He says it to everyone in the gospel of John. And ends last, in chapter 13, he says it to Peter individually. He said it to everyone else, and finally he says to Peter, I'm going where you cannot go. And suddenly, John 14, Jesus changes direction. And if I go where you cannot go, I go there to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be, and I will come from there to where you are. Now, if you've ever been to a funeral, a Christian funeral, you'll hear this text almost certainly misread because this text is not about heaven. It's not about Jesus going away and being away from us and leaving us in his absence until the end of all things when he appears again. It's not that he sends the Holy Spirit to replace him. You know, there's that story about Jesse Duplantis tells about his trip to heaven. Have you ever heard this? Close Encounters of the God kind. You don't know about this? Okay, I don't know if I want to tell you to read it or not. I don't know. I was in Mardell one day and saw it on the shelf, Close Encounters of the God kind, and I sat down and read the whole book in Mardell. Not because I was gripped by the beauty of it. It was, it was like a terrifying experience, but... In that, he claims he goes to heaven and he sees God the Father sitting on the throne. Well, he can't look right at God the Father. He can only see God the Father's feet. But then he sees Jesus, and Jesus is about our size. And then Jesse asks, where's the Holy Spirit? And does anybody want to guess what the answer is? He's on earth, right? So this is, this is basic mythology, right? You've got the, the huge male father and the normal-sized male Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit's here. But that's not what John 14 is about. It's not about Jesus saying, I'm going to go away to the corners of the universe, whatever that would mean, and I want to send the Holy Spirit to replace me. What he says is, I'm going where you cannot go. I'm going to do something that you cannot do. And when I do what cannot be done, from that place, I'm going to come to you so that where I am, you may be. And in the Gospel of John, where he is is spelled out over and over again. In chapter 1, The Son is the one who is in the embrace of the Father. Where is he? He's in God. 
Where is he going? Back into God with the glory he had with God before all things were made. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he means I'm going into God to make room for you in God, to be in God with me. And then I'm going to come from there to you. And the Father and I are going to make our home in you. And what we celebrate on Pentecost is the accomplishment of Christ in his death and resurrection and ascension, opening up room in God for us. And then in Pentecost, the Spirit opening up room in the world for God, in the fullness of God, to come to us. And nothing less than that is what we celebrate. An event that is ongoing, because God is still filling all things with his fullness. And we participate in that. There was an Orthodox bishop in the 1980s who was asked to speak at a World Council of Churches event. And he ended his talk with these lines, which I love. He said, without the Holy Spirit, God is far away. Christ stays in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is simply an organization. Authority is a matter of domination. Mission is a matter of propaganda. Liturgy is nostalgia. And Christian living is slave morality. But with the Holy Spirit, God is with us. The universe is resurrected and groans with the birth pangs of the kingdom. The risen Christ is here. The gospel is a living force. The church is a communion in the life of the Trinity, the body of the living Christ. Authority is service that liberates people. Mission is Pentecost. Liturgy is memory and anticipation. And human action is God's work in the world. That's Pentecost. That's what we're celebrating. And nothing less than that. But how do we celebrate? How do we live the Pentecostal life? And in this text, in both of these texts, we're given a surprising word about how to live it. In Romans, Paul says, you will live this life as you suffer with him. Now, that's an odd word to say. If, if this is what Pentecost is, the fullness of God in us and our fullness in God, if it's the marriage of heaven and earth, the enveloping of the old creation into the new creation, the communion of God with humanity, then why suffering? And this is a mistake that Pentecostal, charismatic, spirit-filled people make over and over and over again in a number of ways. The Pentecostal family is a large, extended family. I come from what I like to call the sweaty Pentecostal tradition. We are old-school Pentecostals. Capital P. We... We sing old courses out of redback hymn books. We preach from the King James Bible. We have 47-hour altar calls. We drink the olive oil that we use to anoint the sick with. Like, we are sweaty Pentecostals. But there are all other kinds of Pentecostals. There are what I like to call the fairyland Pentecostals, which are they're, they're, they're charismatics. And they're, they dance before the Lord. They have banners. You know, have you ever had this, you had this experience before? They sing happy courses. They don't sing out of the Redback hymn book. They sing stuff off the wall, you know? <laughs> they, like, and they're happy people. Like the, Pentecost, the Pentecostals I come from, there's a, the, and Jonathan mentioned this last week, when they preach, they preach mad. Like that, the anointing equals anger. <laughs> right? But the Fairyland Pentecostals, like they preach happy. They, they're, they're light and fun. They're fairy-like, right, in a wonderful way. It's beautiful. And then you've got every other possible manifestation of Pentecostal. But one thing that runs through the whole family tree is the temptation to claim our promise now. It's to do what the prodigal son did. I want what's mine, but I don't want it when it's time. I want it now. 
I want it now. And if God has promised me all good things, I don't want to wait on the end of all things to receive them. I want heaven now. And what what this leads to, in one form or another, is a refusal to accept life as it is. And this is the premise of everything else I'm going to say today. Until we realize that life in God does not give us a different life from that that is experienced by all other human beings, we haven't yet heard the truth. God is not promising you a different life from what everyone else has. We are born into the world just the same way everyone else is born into the world. And we will go out of this world the same way everybody else goes out of the world. And between that first scream and that last gasp of breath, we will experience all the brokenness that everyone else has experienced and will experience until the world ends. God doesn't give you a different life. He lets you experience this life differently. He shows you how to live in the midst of all this sorrow with joy, how to stand at the grave of your loved ones and remain hopeful even while you mourn. But he doesn't give you a different life. And there's a temptation that runs through our entire family that wants God to give us a different life. We don't want to live a life in which sickness and brokenness and injustice and cruelty take place in the world, or at least in our lives. We want God to fix that. We want to live in a world in which our cars never run out of gas. Our houses never burn down. Our friends never betray us. We never get overdrawn at the bank because the blessings of God are so rich in our life, we're not like them. But that... That never lasts, even if in seasons you receive that. You remember the story of Israel when when they're about to be brought out of captivity. All these plagues are falling on Egypt, but they're not falling on the Israelites. But that only lasts for a season. And even those who are spared those plagues still die. They still get hungry. They still lose friends. They still lose prestige. They still lose status. They still suffer in this world. And Paul tells you right up front, If you're going to live this spirit-baptized life, the spirit-filled life, you will do it by suffering with him. And then Jesus says the same thing to the disciples in John 14. I give my spirit to you so that where I am, you can be. But I don't give as the world gives. I don't give the gift you think you want. I give the gift I know you need. And this this is crucial to the whole orientation in Christ, is to recognize there's what I want And then there's what God wants for me. And salvation is the process of dying to these wants and being awakened to what he wants for me. I don't know what's best for me. I know what I would make of my life if I had the power to do it. But I don't know what he wants to make of my life. I have to trust that he knows better than I do. And that there are bad desires that have to die. And that's that's the heart of what what I want to share with you. How How do we let this happen? One of the things we have to do, I think is recognize how God does not save us from failure. Stanley Hauerwas, in his wonderfully provocative way, says this, The gift of Pentecost entails slow, hard work. The gift of Pentecost is the beginning of hard and painful lessons in failure. And this is true if you just read the book of Acts. Spirit falls, 5,000 people are added to the church, and you know what happens next? Those 5,000 people now are all living in Jerusalem. They've come from all the corners of the world to celebrate Pentecost. God happens to them. They decide to stay, and then they start fighting. And they've got to figure out how are they going to feed these widows and who's going to be fed first, who's going to take responsibility to oversee the liturgy and preach, and who's going to wait at tables. And they start with failure to learn how to live together. That's Pentecost. 
That was the first Pentecost, and that's Pentecost now. And we have to learn to accept God is wanting us to live in this world differently, but he's wanting us to live in this world. Maybe you've heard the Arcade Fire song, Speaking in Tongues, which is at the top of the list for Pentecostal fans of Arcade Fire. It's it's a wonderful song. If we had time, we'd stop and play a bit of it. But there's a line in, in the song in which he says, Come out of your head and into my world. Come out of your head and into my world. And he's talking to all of, all of us who are trying to get God to give us a life that doesn't look like everybody else's life. And we end up in our head. And people around us are saying, hey, 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 get out of your head. Come into this world. And God's word to us is get out of your head and get into the world that I've made. This is where I want you. These are the people I want you with. This is the time I meant you to live in. Live here. Right? Get out of your head and get into the world. Right? Learn that Pentecost entails slow, hard work. And so with that in mind, I want to look at the story of one of the saints, the story of a woman. We don't know her name. We only know her as the Shunammite woman, who I think models for us what it looks like to live in the world God has given us faithfully. She shows us what the Pentecostal life looks like. 2 Kings chapter 4. One day, Elisha was passing through Shunem, the prophet Elisha, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to have a meal. So this first time, she has to talk him into it. Because sometimes, you know, you're, you're a little awkward. I don't know if I want to go to their house or not. But she talks him into it. So whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for a meal. So once he's been once and he realized the spread that she made, he keeps going back. I love this too. She said to her husband, look, I'm sure that this man who regularly passes our way, and I love to think about this, like before this, Elisha didn't come much. She finally convinces him to stay with them. He loves it so much. He's like, hmm, I think I'll go through Shunem again, right? And so he's regularly passing their way. She says to her husband, this man is a holy man of God. Let us make a small roof chamber with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, so that he can stay there whenever he comes to us. And I love this too, because remember, Israel in this time is is deeply patriarchal society. And this is a wealthy woman who has a living husband. And in the story's about her, not about him. And when the prophet comes through, she says to her husband, hey babe, we really need to make him a room. And this man's function in the story is basically to just do whatever she tells him to do. So he jumped, which is, you know, what all husbands know, right? This is, nothing's changed, right? And so, I'm just kidding. This is how I get into trouble, right? So they, he says, sure, babe, I'll make it. So he makes a room for this prophet. And so Elisha starts coming even more. Verse 11, one day when he came there, he went up to the chamber and lay down. And he said to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to, her, said to him, say to her, prophets are weird. He didn't just talk to the Shunammite. He has Gehazi translate for him. Say to her, since you have taken all this trouble for us, what may be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I live among my own people. And this is her way of saying, I'm content. I like my life as it is. I don't, I'm not trying to move up to the east side. I'm settled. I live among my own people. And he said, what then may be done for her? And one of the things I want to say, and this is an aside, this is free, as they say, is how the prophet doesn't assume he knows what she needs. And this is a sign of good pastoral care. Bad pastors, bad shepherds, think they always know what you need. 
But Elisha knows he doesn't know what she needs. And he owns that. And as we look through the story, notice how much Elisha admits he doesn't know. What does she need? I don't know. So he asks Gehazi, what do you think? Gehazi says, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Get it? Right? Her husband's not going to give her. He may be able to build a room, but he's not going to be able to impregnate her. So maybe you, maybe you do something about that, Elisha. And so Elisha says, all right, call her. And she comes and stands at the door. And this time he talks to her. And he says, at this season, in due time, you shall embrace a son. Now you would think this is the moment in which she goes into full-on Pentecostal fit. Shouts her hair down, right? Speaks in tongues, says boom shakalaka, whatever she's going to say, right? It worked. We got it in. You would think this is the moment, because you realize what she's being told here is that now she's going to live the story of the matriarchs of Israel. Remember the story? Abraham and Sarah can't have a child, right? And God miraculously gives them a child. Here's a woman whose husband is too old to give her a child. And now the prophet is saying, just like Sarah, you're going to have a child out of season, a child that could not happen apart from the miraculous work of God. And again, you would think this is, camp meeting would break out, revival would break out, and instead... This woman says, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not deceive your servant. I love this for so many reasons. One is how surprising it is. But another is that notice she still affirms him as a man of God. She doesn't question his authenticity. She's just not sure he's making a promise he can come through on. And as a minister, as someone who's a a teacher, and has been a pastor, or at least had the position of pastor, I I wonder how many times I've made promises to people, and their response was, don't deceive me. Now, in this case, Elisha comes through, but this, this is sobering for me, that this is a word you would think the response would just be giddy, joy, overjoyed at the promise that's given, but instead, she says, no, do not deceive me. But a year later, she has a child. And as he grows up, all seems to be well. And then one day we read that the child is older. He's out in the field with his father, reaping the harvest. And he complains, my head, my head. And the father says to the servant, carry him to his mother. Because that's what all good fathers do when the children are sick. (laughs) This man cracks me up, right? Whoever he is. Get, Get this boy to his mom. And he carried him, verse 20, he carried him, the servant carries him and brings him to his mother. The child sat on her lap until noon, and he died. And notice what happens next. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, closed the door on him, and left. Then she called to her husband and said, told you, he's here to do what she tells him to do. She calls the husband and says, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he's a little bit of adult. He says, What's happening? Where are you going? It's not a feast day. It's not a holy day. Why are you going to see the prophet? Not a question about the child that he just sent in a few hours before. And notice her response. It will be all right. It'll be all right. She doesn't tell him what's happened. She doesn't tell him that their child is dead. There are a lot of ways of reading that. Why doesn't she tell him? But what strikes me, it's not the only way to hear it, but what strikes me is that this is, this is a, 
an indication of the hurt that's too deep to talk about, even with people who love you and that you love. Because there are some things in our lives that we just can't voice. No matter what, we can't find the words for them. And she just says, instead of trying to explain to him why she's shattered or what has happened, she just says, it'll be all right. And then she sets out for the prophet. And as she's coming to Mount Carmel, where Elisha is, he sees her coming. Verse 25, he says to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite woman. Run at once to meet her and say to her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is the child all right? And I love this again because the prophet is acknowledging he doesn't know what's happening. He knows something's wrong, but he doesn't know what's wrong. He's a prophet, but he doesn't know everything. And he he owns it. Ask her, what's happening? And so Gehazi runs to her and asks, and she answers to him, it's all right. Then she comes to the man of God. She pushes her way past Gehazi. She comes to Elisha, and she catches hold of his feet. Gehazi approaches her to push her away, to pull her off of the prophet. And this makes me think about all the times in which we're tempted to, to monitor the way people are coming to God, trying to control their desperation. Because we, we, won't, we don't want to look a certain way. Think about the disciples with Jesus. Those When little children would come to him, they would try to control the image. Or when prostitutes would come to Jesus, they wanted to control the image. Or when Gentiles would come to Jesus, they wanted to control his image. Samaritans come to Jesus. They want to control the image. Because there's something about us, we're always wanting to make God look a certain way. But Elisha's response is beautiful. And he says to Gehazi, do not stop her. Let her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden from me the reason and has not told me. And here you see the prophet again, owning that he doesn't know what's happening. And again, this to me is the mark of a true shepherd. He or she owns. They don't understand everything. There's nothing more sure, about, no, no sure sign of a false prophet than the claim to know what isn't known. The claim to understand things that can't be understood. So one of the marks of authenticity is when the minister, when the pastor, when the bishop or the preacher or the teacher says, I don't know. And sometimes we don't know because God hides it from us. God has hidden this from me, he says. I don't know what's happening. And then she says this, and this tells us why she responded the way she did to the promise. Did I ask my Lord, for a son? Did I not say, do not mislead me? Here's what's happened in this case. This is a woman. We don't know her full story. We can tell from the way she responds to this promise and then the death of this child that at some point in her life, she desperately wanted a child. And she, no doubt, like like Sarah and like Hannah and like all of these mothers of Israel, she cried out for God to give her a child and she didn't get one. And at some point, she matured enough to accept her life as it is. She put those desires to bed. At some point in her life, she recognized, okay, some women don't have children given to them. And I'm one of those women. My husband is old. He can build a room for me. He can work in the field, but he can't. Give me a child, and I love him, and I accept my life as it is. Because one of the marks of maturity of faith is you come to accept your limits. And you accept that God is not going to give you everything you want like you want it when you want it. That's a sign of maturity. Not the weakening of faith, but the deepening and the strengthening of faith. 
in which you put to bed all of those bad desires in which you're trying to get God to be a resource for the life you want. That's what idols are. Idols are resources that you use to build the life you want. But our God is not useful in that way. He's not there to resource the life you want to build or to save you from what you want to be saved from or to give you what you want to be given. He's there to make you what he intends for you to be. And that's, that's an entirely different orientation. And at some point, this wise woman realized, this is the life I've been given, and I accept it, and I rejoice in it. And from that place, she's able to be hospitable. One of the things that's striking about her story is how wildly gracious she is. She makes room in her life for the man of God, which tells you that when she came to terms with the fact that God wasn't going to give her a child, she didn't lose faith in God, and she didn't become bitter. She didn't turn against the prophet. She didn't turn against God. She just said, this is the life I've been given, and I'm content with that. And out of that contentment flows hospitality. And this is another sermon within the sermon. But hospitality is impossible without contentment. As long as you have bad desires, that you're trying to make a certain kind of life for yourself, and you're grasping for more and more and more, you can never settle long enough to just make room for other people. And we will never be a hospitable people until we are content with what God has given us. My grandmother, my Pentecostal grandmother with the beehive hairdo, she taught me this. When we were in Bible college, we were in a class together, Julie and I were in a class together, a marriage and family class, even though we didn't know we were going to be married eventually. At that point, I was determined I was never getting married, but the Lord moves in mysterious ways. And see, I'm in more trouble now. Although that's a beautiful story, but I can't tell it. So we're in this, this class, and the teacher invited my mother and my grandmother up to be a part of a panel to talk about marriage. My grandmother had been married 50-plus years at that point. And I mean, I, this is a woman I grew up with. Right? I didn't think of her as wise, as sage. But that day, she said something that still rocks me. She, she's asked, the teacher asks my grandmother, Pentecostal hairdo, no makeup, you know, like old-school, sweaty Pentecostal, right? She asks her, what was the secret to your marriage. And this is what my grandmother said. She said, I never let myself desire anything I knew he couldn't give me. Think about that for a moment. I never let myself desire anything I knew he couldn't give me. Do you know how wise that is? Because there are all kinds of things in us in which we're putting false expectations on other people that are false because they can't give those things to us. And the temptation for people who are close to God is to think, well, God is infinite. God has all resources. Anything I want, he can give to me. No, because not all desires are good, and not all the things you want would be good for you if you got them. And part of the life in the Spirit is putting to death the bad desires that are in you and letting God sort out the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff, what you should desire from what is in you because of sin. And coming to terms with sometimes he's not giving it to you because it wouldn't be good for you. And she had come to that place. And then, no sooner does she get there, content, hospitable, settled, the prophet says, that thing that you're no longer asking for, God's going to do it. And that's why she says, don't you do that to me. Don't you come along awakening these desires I've already put to bed. Because here's the temptation. It is a move of maturity from this naive demand on God to give you all your desires to this place of settled with what you have 
But there's a temptation here too. And that temptation is to think what you have is all you're ever going to need or ever going to get. And you can foreclose on the ongoing work of God. And that's exactly what this woman has done. It hasn't made her bitter, but it has made it so that her eyes are not on the horizon of what God is doing. She's only seen what's right in front of her. And so when God says, I'm going to do this in your life, her response is, no, you're not. And then God does it, but she's living with dread. You know she is. And then sure enough, the day comes, that boy dies, and she's had enough. And she makes her way to that prophet, and she said, I told you not to do this to me. I told you not to deceive me. I learned to put that to bed, and you woke it up, and now I'm, I'm having to deal with the bitterness of it. And notice the prophet says she's in bitter distress. And so the prophet says to his servant, take your staff, run ahead and put it on the boy's body. And he does, and it doesn't work. Because sometimes even godly ministers make suggestions that don't work. Right? And the early church fathers, Augustine and many others, love this text. In fact, this is one of their favorite texts to preach from because they see in this assembling, a kind of prefiguration of the law and the gospel. And they say the law is like the staff of Moses that's laid on the dead body of sinners. And it brings no life. But then God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And the story is kind of strange. We won't read it this morning. But he comes into the room, the prophet does, and he lays down. Lies down on the, on, the, on the body of the boy and breathes mouth to mouth to him. And at first it doesn't work. He walks around the room praying, does it again, and then the boy sneezes and, and his eyes open and he comes to life. And the early church fathers say, this is the gospel. That the, the, the rod of Moses could bring no life, but then he came in the flesh and breathed his breath into us. And we come to life. It's beautiful, but I'm not preaching about that. It, and it's, it's a wonderful, and I think it gets right to the heart of what's happened. He's breathed his breath into us, but this is, this is what interests me. So he raises the boy, and then he calls for the woman. Call the Shunammite, and she comes, and the story ends this way. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. So he called her, verse 36. When she came to him, he said, take your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she took her son and left. She doesn't say a word. She just falls down in relief and in gratitude. And she gathers up her son and she leaves. And you know what happens next in the story? A famine. And the famine is so severe that she and her husband and her resurrected child have to leave for seven years and live in Philistia. When they come home, someone's taken their house from them and their lands. And the king has to restore it to them. Here's, here's what strikes me about the way she leaves. She leaves settled. When we first met her, she had, four, she had come to a place of maturity. She wasn't falsely expecting God to do anything, but she had foreclosed on the possibility that God would do anything. And when she leaves, she's neither too high or, or too low. She understands she's still living in this world, a world in which all kinds of Bad things are going to happen. Right around the next corner is some disaster. But she leaves knowing that no matter what, are, what is around that next corner, what disaster is there, there is a faithful God who's there too. And so I never have to be too high, and I never have to be too low. Something bad is coming, but there is a good God who's going to make good out of that bad, also already present with you in your future and in your present as well as your past, and you don't have to be afraid. He doesn't give as the world gives, but he gives. 
You will have to suffer with him, but while you suffer with him, you do it in great joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory. You're not going to get a different life from the life everyone else gets, but you can live this life differently. You can live this life with peace, not because nothing bad happens to you or the people you love, but because no matter what happens to you, greater is the one who is in you than the one who's in the world. And whatever the enemy means for evil, God intends for good. And whenever you suffer, God will take that suffering and transform it and you for the good of your neighbor. You don't have to be afraid. And the key to this entire story, I think, is that line she says to her husband and to the servant, it'll be all right. And this is where we need to play Kendrick Lamar for just a moment. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And there are two ways you shouldn't hear that and shouldn't say it. It's not going to be all right in some naive way. You know, I've been these, this person, you know people like this, who they, they're, they're so positive, like sickeningly positive about everything. The glass isn't half full. The glass is always overflowing, Right? And they, they say it's all right because they refuse to come to terms with the fact that this world is broken and that death remains the end of all of our stories. That sickens me. I said in the first service, I hate those people, but I've repented. I no longer hate those people. But it's hard for me not to hate those people because it isn't all right in that sense. The world is not all right in this sense. Say that to those mothers in Syria. It's not all right in that way. It's not just going to fix itself. This is the myth of progress, that we're always moving toward a better future. No, we're not. We're not things aren't just going to work out all right. This is a broken world. This is a diseased world. But there's another way we should never say it. And that is with this kind of despairing sarcasm or irony. This, this is characteristic of my generation. This kind of distancing from the reality of the world by irony. In which we say it's going to be all right in a way that mocks the people who say it optimistically. And what's happened to so many in my generation is that we've become, we use sarcasm and irony as a way of not dealing with the fact that we have those same hopes. We just know they're not going to come true. And so instead of letting God break us through to genuine hope, we just mock the people who have those naive hopes. And there's a form of Christianity that becomes that, becomes ironic, becomes sarcastic. It becomes all Lent and no Easter. And that's not faithful. Just because there are some silly people who think everything's going to be all right doesn't mean that you and I are right to mock them for that silliness. Because despair is just as sinful as presumption. Despair is just as sinful as presumption. And what we need to do is say it's going to be all right, not as some kind of glib comment on optimism and not out of some despairing sarcasm, but out of defiant hopefulness that I don't know how it's going to work and it's certainly not going to work because I make it work, but God is God and God is a good God and God can do whatever God wants and whatever happens to me, he will be God in the end and it will be good for me and good for all. So it's going to be all right, not because I'm going to make it all right or because things are good, but because God is God. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. So whatever you're talking about, macro level or micro level, internationally, nationally, communally, familially, personally, whatever you mean, it's going to be all right. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. It's going to be all right. I wish I had Kendrick Lamar here with me. It's going to be all right. Seriously, it's going to be all right. Do you understand that? We're not optimistic. We're not pessimistic. 
We are hopeful because we understand the God who is with us, the God whose fullness is already enveloping us, is the one who calls something out of nothing, the God who calls light out of nothing, the God who makes the dead to rise to life again. Is anything too hard for God? It's going to be all right. And I'll end with this, and then Pastor Jonathan's going to come. In the Christian calendar, we move right out of Pentecost into what's called ordinary time. I love this. Pentecost is the end, the climax, of extraordinary time that starts with Advent. In Advent, we celebrate the coming of God in the flesh. And then we move through Advent into Lent and then on into Holy Week where we, talk, we see God suffering in the flesh and we see God dying in the flesh and we see God raised in the flesh. All of it's extraordinary. And then that climax is in Pentecost where that risen God pours out that spirit upon all flesh. And as soon as that happens, we are thrust into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It is what Jamie Smith calls the sanctified letdown. When Jesus is resurrected, everyone thinks this is the end. This is when heaven opens up and earth is ushered into it and all things are made right. And instead, right when we think we're at the last chapter, imagine you're at the end of the book, you can feel the last pages and you turn the page and you realize this is part one of a who knows how many part story. That's what Pentecost is. Extraordinary, mind-blowing God among us, God like fire in our bodies and then Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Because when God does something extraordinary, he does it to open out on ordinary life. And we will only be able to live that if we learn from this woman's story. That the only way to live in this ordinary, broken, diseased world faithfully is to not be naive and not to be despaired, but to be hopeful. And know that whatever comes, whatever thing is around that next corner, God is there. And God is with us. And we do not have to be afraid. It's going to be all right. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.